Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. This is Histories of the Unexpected. He's the famous historical adventurer, Dr. Sam Willis. And he's Professor Extraordinaire of Early Modern British History at Plymouth University. He is Professor James Daybell. And we are your hosts for Histories of the Unexpected. Each week we discuss a surprising subject oozing with unexpected historical significance. And this week it's monsters. Which is all about female rule, the world turned upside down... And, of course, the Reformation. Well, for me, it's all about religious satire, believe it or not. If you like what you hear, please leave us a review on iTunes. Subscribe to the podcast and tell all of your friends. We're on Twitter. You can follow me at Dr Sam Willis. And you can follow me at James Daybell. And you can follow Histories of the Unexpected at Unexpected Podcast, spelled P-D-C-S-T. We are proud to be part of the excellent History Hit Network, Home of Dan Snow's History Hit and other great shows coming soon. And you can find out more about what we've got planned in the forthcoming months. Show notes, video clips, photos of everything we discuss and much, much more at historyhit.com forward slash unexpected. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to episode 29 of Histories of the Unexpected, where we will be audio googling through history, exploring the histories of things that you didn't even know had a significant story to tell, like the mirror, the paperclip, or a brand new one we've just come up with, the cake. Brilliant. And we'll be following the links in our minds as we come across them, explaining how simply everything has a history, and crucially, how those histories link together in unexpected ways. Who knew, for example, Sam, that the history of tears is in fact all about art galleries? I don't believe it. Absolutely. <laughs> and the history of the mirror is all about telling politicians how to behave. It's about John Knox and the first blast of the trumpet against the monstrous regiment of women. It's about female rule. Brilliant. The man sitting opposite me is the triathlete of time zones, <laughs> which I'm particularly pleased with. Brilliant. It's Professor James Daybell. And the man sitting opposite me is the ombudsman of the olden days it is the wonderful dr sam willis together we will be piloting you on this uncharted and frankly highly dangerous flight into the past each week one of us will take the lead and this week it's my turn and i'm very excited about this okay one. what have you got for me monsters monsters. <laughs> monsters monsters okay we need to steer clear of dragons and zombies mm. since we've done podcasts on those so off the top of your head off the top of my head professor if Daybell. I think it, professor Daybell, no <laughs> pressure one of the things that strikes me about monsters is the way in which historically societies have been obsessed with monsters and you can follow monsters back to sort of classical antiquity they crop up in the bible 
there throughout the medieval world and into the the modern world today. So you think about, you know, the cinema is obsessed with monsters. So I think you can have a taxonomy of monsters in the sense that you can sketch out the monsters from things like Grendel through to Frankenstein through to Godzilla. But then there are the... There's a clear chronology, isn't there? There's a clear chronology in terms of, you know, identifying monsters. But there are also deeper questions. Why have societies been so obsessed with monsters you know are there distinct periods in which monsters kind of emerged periods of crisis how have societies explained monstrous beings monstrous events the idea of the monster as a metaphor Mm. for something that is unnatural monstrous events is interesting so I think actually one of the best ways of getting into it is to try and say, right, let's try and define a monster. What are we talking about here? Because there are so many different ways you can go with a monster. So what do we think a monster is? Something that's frightening. Monsters are physically different from us in an unpleasant, challenging way. Monsters might live according to different rules. I've just watched Louis Theroux's programme called Savile. Right. And it made me think of a a different kind of monster, but one who pretty much looks the same. Yeah. And it's something frightening that can be hidden in the everyday. They don't have to be physically hideous. A lot of the monsters, I think, that appeared in films and books are people who look normal. Yeah. And as serial killers. Yeah. Well, you can also think about it etymologically. You know, you think about the derivation of the term monster which comes from the Latin monstrum, uh, which means aberrant occurrence. And in sort of biological terms, it's something that is unnatural. But also the root of monstrum is monere, which is to warn, but also to instruct. So that leads us to these sort of deeper sort of societal and moral questions about the monster as well. I like the in- instructing because one of the key things about this, if you talk about the chronology of monsters, yeah. is they keep coming back. They don't. They never go away. No. They've got something important to teach us, I think. And the monsters are not happy until we've learned this thing. So and, and that's mo- what we're going to get to the bottom of. And monster killers. You monster. know, there are always people who are there to protect you from the monsters. Mm. I'm quite a fan of the monster, and I think general monsteriness is important to the way we think about ourselves. So I don't think monsters should be killed. I think there should be more of them. (laughs) We need monsters. I'm going to go political and intellectual history and then a little bit of sociocultural history with this. Right, Okay. I'll tell you what, you start. Me start? Yeah. Okay. so I'm going to start with John Knox, female rule. John Knox is a Scottish firebrand theologian, ardent Protestant. Period. Period. We're looking sort of mid-16th century here. I could have guessed that. Uh, for, those of you, for those of you who don't know, <laughs> surprise, surprise, the daybell uh, is back in the 16th and 17th century. So we start with a title page from a book published in exile, a tract called The First Blast of the Trumpet Against the Monstrous Regiment of Women, in which... Knox lays out the argument for a world turned upside down. This is a period when we have a queen on the throne. We have um, a queen up in Scotland. We have Mary Tudor on the throne. We have the Reformation in full flight on the continent in England. We've had Henry VIII. We've had Edward VI. We've got a pretty fair shaping up sort of Protestant direction, reformist direction in terms of religion. Edward dies as a teenage boy and his Catholic half-sister Mary takes over. And it's at this point that Knox writes this because basically what he's doing is he's saying that it's unnatural for a woman to be on the throne. Now, in actual fact, I think what he meant was it's unnatural for a Catholic woman to be on the throne. But what's interesting is the way in which he describes this as monstrous, as a disruption 
to the natural order. And I just want to read you a little extract from him here. That God has subjected womankind to man by the order of his creation and by the curse that he has pronounced against her is declared before. Besides these, he has set before our eyes two other mirrors and glasses in which he wills that we should behold the order which he has appointed and established in nature. The one is the natural body of man. The other is the politic or civil body of that commonwealth in which God, by his own word, has appointed an order. In the natural body of man, God has appointed an order that the head shall occupy the uppermost place and the head he has joined with the body, that from it life and motion do flow to the rest of the members. In it, he has placed the eye to see, the ear to hear, the tongue to speak, which offices are appointed to none other member of the body. The rest of the members have every one their own place and office appointed, but none may have neither the place nor office of the head. And here the head is basically the monarch. This is about the body politic, the state. For who would not judge that body to be a monster where there was no head eminent above the rest, but that the eyes were in the hands, the tongue and the mouth beneath in the belly, and the ears in the feet. Men, I say, should not only pronounce this body to be a monster, but assuredly they might conclude that such a body could not long endure. And no less monstrous is the body of that commonwealth where a woman bears empire, for either it does lack a lawful head, as in very deed it does, or else there is an idol exalted in the place of that true head so basically what's an amazing quote it gets better and better doesn't it It gets kind of stronger against momentum yeah and what we've got is this sort of metaphor of the sort of human body the physical body mapped onto the body politic the way in which a country is structured with the monarch as the head that leads everything and what we see is this in sort of distorted form got a sort of monstrous body when the head is female i mean this has set off sort of big debates among historians about implication being it's not to be trusted it's not to be trusted it's it's the world turned upside down what happens when women are on top and in power but it's led to huge debates in, among historians about, you know, how did people think about female rule? I see him really as a maverick. His timing was appalling. <laughs> I mean, absolutely appalling. I mean, this came out and Queen Elizabeth came onto the throne. Yeah. Uh, she's a Protestant. Yeah. Um, in his mind, everything is all right. I mean, she basically won't speak to him. When he comes back from the continent where he's been in exile, he's not actually able to travel through England. But that makes the key point about that. You know, it's a snapshot of one person's view. We don't yeah. know how prevalent that was. And the fact that Elizabeth is queen almost immediately afterwards. Yeah. Get, and you get all of these tracts coming out afterwards that rip it apart. That's great, though. That's kind of slightly reassuring, because the first respect is like that sort of appalling thing to Um, say. I mean, because it is basically a resistance tract. And if you followed the history of resistance tracts, you know, you could go all the way up to something like John Milton and the tenure of kings and magistrates, which justifies the regicide of of Charles I. You know, so in, in political terms, this is a deeply dangerous and radical text because it's justifying regicide. Mm. So, of course, the establishment come in and refute it once Elizabeth is on the throne. So John Aylmer's harbour of faithful and true subjects basically just rips it apart point by point. So there we are, monsters. It's about female politicians. Amazing, and female rules. I'm doing monsters and religion. 
Oh, which is interesting. Kind of fell into it when I was filming on the Silk Road. I found some amazing depictions of these things called pretas. Praters. I don't even know how to pronounce it. P-R-E-T-A-S. Praters. And they're very common in Buddhism, Hinduism and Sikhism. And um, there's a slightly blurry image of one there. But they are hands down the most appalling monsters in any religion. Worth saying now that almost every religion has its monsters. And it's really interesting understanding when those monsters appear in the religion, what the kind of the history of the monstriness appears. Anyway, these are terrible things, these predators. They're very distinctive. They have very narrow necks. They have very small mouths distended bellies. It looks terrifying. It is completely terrifying. The idea is that there are people who've lived a bad life one way or another, whether they're false, corrupted, jealous, greedy, deceitful, compulsive, and they are punished by being sent back to Earth with insatiable hunger or thirst, usually. And so their mental state is often reflected in their physical appearance. So the small mouth and the small neck means that although they are utterly consumed by insatiable hunger or thirst, they can't ever satisfy it because they can't get enough of whatever it is they're trying to eat or drink into their bodies. And the distended belly is is a kind of a symbol of their hunger. Right. The really interesting thing about them, though, is that they don't hunger for peaches and milk and honey. It's people. (laughs) Well, no, it's it's corpses corpses or poo. Corpses or poo. Yeah, feces or cadavers. Feces or cadavers. What um, a delightful diet. It is, it's, a, it's a truly appalling thing. So I just wanted to demonstrate just how nasty Goodness these, me. these and is monsters that, Are those flames get. coming? Those are flames are coming out of his mouth and he's terrifying someone I mean, there look, in that picture. It looks sort of like an emaciated zombie. But what I thought was really interesting about this is it's people being able to identify with monsters. Okay, So these are people who have normal human flaws that are yeah. sent back to life. So yeah. greed, compulsiveness, disease that's not a rare thing in the human condition and one of the ways of looking at monsters is our interest in monsters is all to do with the fact that we can see ourselves in the monsters they reflect the fact that we are imperfect people and that's why they're very popular in religion as a metaphor for human weakness essentially now Mm. that raises the really interesting question for me of how monsters actually relate to religion and if we see ourselves as monsters in terms of if there was a creator and this is a theological problem this exists for ages why are you creating something which is imperfect and which is downright evil and what i love about this is it's an issue that a lot of people are aware of but i'm not certain that people understand that there is a history of people trying to answer that question so seeing humanity as monstrous seeing ourselves as flawed has reared its head a number of times very very specifically in history one of which is immediately after the holocaust right because one of the problems is that judaism they see god as being omniscient omnipotent and omnibenevolent and it's a very specific aspect of judaism as a religion so a lot of jewish philosophers struggled with this idea of trying to reconcile the fact that there had been the holocaust with their understanding of god and so i think that one way of looking at monsters actually allows you to understand or certainly to think about how humanity has struggled to understand evil in the world and how that has changed over time there are these hot spots of people really really struggling and the second world war is is a wonderful surprisingly modern example of it and there have been a number of really interesting jewish philosophers writing about it and changing Mm -hmm. perceptions of judaism and advancing philosophy in relation to understanding 
creationism and how we've been put here. So that's an example of how, you know, something that is an absolute crisis, you know, leads to a kind of reorganisation of the way in which we think about the world, mm. but also the way in which we think about monsters within that. I mean, monsters have always had a connection with religion in terms of religion has always been a very important central interpretive framework. So if we go back to the example that I talked about before, I mean, it's interesting there that the monster and the ordering of society is connected to a religious worldview. You know, we think about the very sort of fundamentals of a religion like Christianity, and at the heart of it, you have not only God, but you also have Satan and his demons and the devil. And often societies will interpret monstrous happenings as God's intervention in the world or as sin, you know, as sort of occurrence of sin, which leads me to go to monstrous birth. Okay. So this is taking us in a different direction because I think what you've talked about with the Holocaust is an absolutely, you know, monstrous process in history event I mean, you know how, however one describes that we've talked about serial killers and monsters we've talked about monsters in cinema we can go on and talk about monsters in forms of art but what we've got here in monstrous birth what effectively you have is people that have been born deformed so they've either been born with multiple limbs or they've been born with huge sort of deformities and the question then is how societies have explained that mm. how societies have interpreted that now sometimes and this is where the religious element comes in sometimes this is seen as god's intervention you know that it's innately sinful so that somebody has sinned it's often the woman that has sinned in some way it can also be connected to witchcraft so monstrous birth is often connected to a witch having cursed somebody caused either a monstrous birth or an aborted fetus and so it crops up there. It's also, and this connects to one of our previous podcasts about blood, and when we talked about menstruation uh, there, it's also connected to that in some way, because it's thought that basically a monstrous birth was the product of some kind of sinful sexual behaviour on behalf of a woman or on behalf of a couple. So when a woman was menstruating, if she had sex, uh, this could produce a monstrous birth. And I've got a quote from a ballad here that describes this. So we've got here a sort of early 18th century ballad. Press not your wives, though heightened lust incite the soul to try the pleasurable fight while the blood monthly rushing from the veins, the flowing womb with foul pollution stains. But if by chance the seeds concurring fix, and with the impurer dross of nature mix, what a detested, miscreated thing from such ill-suited principles must spring. Foul leprous spots shall with his birth begin, spread o'er his body and encrust his skin, for the same poison which that stream contains transferred affects the forming infant's veins and so it, it goes on so it's this idea of the sort of pollution of the body the impact of this sort of menstrual blood on the fetus i'm wondering if this kind of issue of monstrous birth was more significantly more of a problem in you know the 17th century or whatever you medieval, want to say. In, in medieval, uh, uh, medieval into the world. early modern yeah just, just because of a lack of advances in medicine so yeah. it was something yeah. that people had to 
try and come to terms with much more yep. frequently than we do now. So yep. actually, it's not just them saying, oh, oh here's a deformed birth, how are we going to work out with yeah, this? Yeah, it's yeah. actually a massive part of everyday life. And it probably, I'm assuming here, and I probably with some confidence, that it affected a vastly greater number of people than it does yeah. today. And in that respect, yeah. it was it but, was something... But if you, think, if you think about it, I mean, one of the things that's striking, certainly with the advent of printing from the sort of mid-15th century onwards, we have the depiction of monstrous births in a sort of sensational way, which you can still see today. You know, so the first test tube baby you know, was seen as something that was miraculous. You know, we have... Uh, my mon- is monstrous, by <laughs> as well. We have uh, a woman who gave birth to eight kids being seen as unnatural. You know, Channel 4's obsession with sort of showing, you know, documentaries about deformity is sort of sensationalising this. There is a, a field of science that studies monstrosity nowadays so that you know there's a much more sharp scientific way of dealing with it rather than a sort of superstitious sort of you know pseudo religious way of dealing with it but going back to religion i haven't finished with my religion Ah, i butted in i'm sorry sam that's that's right i'm going from praetors to to this (laughs) this is a texas driving license depicting a (laughs) depicting a woman with a colander on her head that's correct where on earth are we going with this well um here's another one here we are czech republic this is a man with a colander on his head and dreadlocks and this is fantastic it's a formal identity photograph okay and so in terms of formal identity photographs your passport or your driving license what allows you to wear headgear any Uh, idea if you're it's it's religion uh, religion religion religion. okay if you're wearing headgear for religious purposes right you're allowed to wear headgear in formal identity. Now, does that man have a colander on? He, his he also has a sieve on his head. Right, right. a, a colander. Sieve. A so, sieve. I'm, I'm taking you to something called pastafarianism. Pastafarianism. <laughs> 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 right. Which is a mix between rastafarianism and pasta. Right. And the Church of the Flying Spaghetti Monster. So, this is innately sensible. It is innately sensible, but it's very, very important good, and historically good. significant. Tell us about it. Um, the Church of the Flying Spaghetti Monster. In the Church of the Flying Spaghetti Monster, okay, so this is Michelangelo's creation of Adam. Here yep. and then this is this is the flying spaghetti monster here, <laughs> right? So bear with me. And there's a the meatballs. Um, the flying spaghetti monster is really important and really really interesting. In 2005, Bobby Henderson, who was an unemployed uh, physics graduate from Oregon, wrote an open letter to the Kansas State Board of Education because they were insisting that intelligent design was taught at schools. He then wrote a letter and he said, "I, I don't believe in Christianity. I believe in the flying spaghetti monster who created the world by accident when he was drunk." And he said, I expect you to teach the gospel of the flying spaghetti monster alongside intelligent design and evolution. I think it should have equal weight to whatever's going on in terms of teaching kids. Did people listen to him? It raised absolute hell. I can imagine. It's been really interesting. So what's happened is that people have now sign up to the Church of the Flying Spaghetti Monster and they are allowed to take photographs of themselves with colanders on their heads because they are saying it is an officially recognised religion. And it is in the Netherlands and New Zealand. It is now an officially recognised religion. Where I'm going with this, of course, is that it's to do with religious satire. 
it's mocking religion. What's going on here, even though it was 2005, it's quite a modern thing, and the internet is absolutely full of flying spaghetti monsterism, it's called. Hmm. Even a gospel's been written about the flying spaghetti monster. There is an amazing history of religious satire, which you can go back to Monty Python. Let's think about the life of Brian. And that's interesting. Or uh, the Canterbury Tales. And in this respect, he has replaced the creator with... With meatballs and spaghetti. With meatballs and spaghetti. With eyes. And a monster. His main belief is that whenever a scientist was, say, carbon dating something, the flying spaghetti monster would adjust the results of the scientific experiment with his noodly appendage which is actually the, the words the words noodly he, appendage. His, his, the noodly appendage but what he objected to mostly was religion being more significant than science and in the same way actually if you think about the life of brian in the 70s with monty python they weren't really having a go at religion per se but it was more to do with attacking closed systems of thought it was to do with being told something was the case even though it couldn't be proven Mm. And this links us to a very famous philosophical, ex- well, a kind of a, a problem called Russell's teapot. <laughs> and so basically the idea is someone would say that there is a teapot flying around the Earth in orbit somewhere between the Earth and Mars. OK, the point is, is that I'm still with you. If don't you worry. claim that you cannot expect people to accept it as truth because you can't prove it's wrong. Do you see what I mean? And and that's exactly the same thing that's happened here with the flying spaghetti monster. So there are two things going on here. And one of them is this really interesting philosophical problem of expecting people to accept something that's true if you cannot prove it is untrue. And the other is the long and fascinating history faith. of religious faith in the spaghetti monster. Faith in the spaghetti monster. Canterbury Tales is a brilliant one. So, you know, me- medieval tracts and ridiculing mm. the church Mm-mm-mm. for Mm-mm. all of these ideas of weakness, greed, corruption um, that we started talking about with monsters. So it is all... Erasmus's praise of folly. And Erasmus's... It's, yep, absolutely. Yep, yep, yep. It's, all, it's all linked with monsters and it's all linked with human weakness. And all linked with religion. Before we go, I think one of the things that we skirted around is this idea of of monsters emerging at particular crisis points. And I want to bring us back to, as always, the Reformation. Luther's moon calf. I have a picture here. Whoa. This isn't actually Luther's moon calf, but it's a... It's a two-headed It's a two-headed calf. Calf. Yes, which is in a museum somewhere. This is in Freiburg in Saxony, in the German States, 8th of December, 1522. I've been to Um, Freiburg. You have nice, very nice. Yeah, good, good. <laughs> well, in, in fifteen twenty-two, on the eighth of December, a deformed calf was born, with very oddly shaped legs. And uh, what was interesting about it was that it had a huge sort of almost like a cowl coming from its neck, so like a big sort of fold of skin that made it look rather like a monk. Mm. And so it became associated with the Reformation by the Catholics, and was thought to be, you know, look like Luther. And that this was a sign of what was going wrong in the German states at That's the time. That's interesting, because also with religious satire, if you think about when that happens, it's usually at a time of moral Yep. conflict yep. or cultural yep. crisis one way or another yep. which you know that's a theme that's running through all yep. this as well it's, and, and it, it's understanding the cultural context of what's going yep. on when monsters yep. suddenly appear it becomes something of an issue at this time it's so much so that luther actually responds in satirical form uh with a pamphlet kind of you know completely sort of denouncing it and rejecting it Brilliant. Okay, well, where let's have, where draw we monsters to a conclusion. We've gone from people with colanders on their heads in Texas in 2005 to Luther, to cows, to John Knox, Hinduism, John Knox, Elizabeth Monstrous I. Monstrous birth. Um, we've been absolutely everywhere. And we haven't talked about Godzilla. 
No. One of my favourite monsters mm, on film. That's to or do Frankenstein. Godzilla's to do with, uh, I'm scrabbling here, nuclear tests. Excellent. It is, 50s. That's Excellent. exactly what it's to do with. Excellent. It's to do with the Americans testing nuclear bombs in the Pacific. We should have done that. In the 1950s. We have done that. My grandfather was there. Really? Bikini Atoll, yeah. Well, one of the things the Americans did is they took the Japanese fleet, captured off the Second World War, and they tied them up around a island, filled them up with livestock, and then exploded a nuclear bomb. So, you know the very famous photographs of... Yes, the mushroom cloud. The mushroom cloud. Yep. Well, they did two. They did one in the sea, and they did one above the sea. And the one in the sea is amazing, because it's got black scars running up it. And those scars, they look like gaps in the cloud. They're not their ships. Right. They're enormous Japanese warships, and they symbolically nuked the Japanese Navy. Goodness so me. They go, anyway, and the Brits did it as well, in the middle of the Pacific, and my grandpa was there. He only died recently, but he was well in his 90s, humming with radiation, I suspect. <laughs> now, but <laughs> they, they were given a pair of sunglasses and told to turn around just to turn their backs on the nuclear yeah. blast. You might get a tan. Yeah. <laughs> Monstrous. He's, he's one of the few people on Earth who's seen a nuclear explosion and not been killed by it. Goodness me. Hmm. What a point to end on. I know, brilliant. Okay, can you please get in touch with us? You are the most important part of this podcast. Get in touch with us on the theme of monsters, noodly appendages, religious satire, anything you want to, really, and also ideas for more shows. We'd really appreciate it. But that's it for now. Thank you very much for listening. Bye. Bye. If you enjoy this podcast and you like learning about the past, check out my latest venture. It's called History Masterclass, and it's a new type of historical event where you can actually learn in person from the best historians around today in unique and stunning historical locations. You can find out more at thehistorymasterclass.com and follow on Facebook and Twitter at The History MC.